we are talking about marriage today. And not all of you are married. Uh, many people, even if you're not married, you will be married at some point. But marriage is a key relationship. There's not really anybody that I know that says life is awesome but my marriage sucks. That, that's very rare. They're, they're very connected. The quality of your marriage often will affect so much else of your life. One of the main reasons that people get married is because they say, I want to find someone to make me happy. And there's problems with that I won't get into, but th that's one of the main reasons that people think about marriage is happiness. And it's one of the main causes and sources that can hurt your happiness. And marriage is an essential aspect of thinking through what it looks like to build a life. The series that we're going through in Ephesians is looking at the various building blocks of what it takes to build a life, to have a life that moves further and further towards what God's vision is for you. And if you are married or if you hope to be married at some point or whatever that is, you, you want a marriage that's filled with joy. You want a marriage that lasts, that endures. You want a marriage where you get it right. It's, you're, you're not just kind of floundering around the whole time, but you're able to get it right. I don't know if you are married or if you want to be married at some point, what is the vision in your mind of marriage that you have? It's probably a relationship that's a strong friendship. Probably one where there's passion and you feel that there's a, maybe a romance, there's a commitment where you are there for one another and it's something that lasts a long time, not just a brief kind of flash in the pan. And yet oftentimes, as I said, marriages can be a source of, of great struggle and pain. I've been a pastor for a long time now, and I've a lot of the issues that people have that I pray with people about, that I talk with people about, that I give resources about is around marriage, either the longing for or the hurt within or marriages breaking up or all the different pain that can come along with that. Sometimes marriages are just cold. There is not a lot of passion that is in them. Sometimes it's just business-like. It's just kind of getting through life together. Sometimes there's a lot of conflict and fighting, or sometimes just lose that, as Tom Cruise taught us to sing, you lose that loving feeling, right? I know it wasn't originally him, but he kind of made it more famous in Top Gun. Maybe some of you are too young for that. I don't know. <laughs> You've lost that love and feeling. There, that's what I was talking about, if you didn't know. Oh, wow. Why am I preaching if, if that's what it takes? <clears throat> Stop, stop, stop. No, I'm just kidding. So some of you are just starting your marriages. Some of you are just beginning in your marriages. We have a younger church and many of you are just starting. Some of you are thinking about getting married. Some of you have been married for a long time and it might be the best that it's ever been. Or sometimes as the longer you've been married, you start to realize some of the, the hiccups that are present, some of the tensions that are present. Many divorces actually occur around the seven or eight year mark. So even if you've been married for a while, you may begin to feel some of the tension, some of the pain in your marriage. And if you want to be able to fully experience marriage the way that God designed it to be, then we have to step into marriage the way that God designed it to be. 
Anytime we use something in a way that it wasn't designed for, you never experience the fullness of that thing. I've, I've used this illustration before, but I remember one time looking into my backyard and, and seeing my kids. They were supposed to be doing some weeding. This was several years ago. They were supposed to be doing some weeding, and they were using a, a badminton racket to weed. I was like, that's not the best tool for that. That's not what it was designed for. So it's probably not going to have, it might take you a long time to be able to weed the the garden with a badminton racket. If you don't use things in the way they were designed and the way they were created for, you won't experience the fullness of what it was made for. And so listen, if you want to experience the fullness of what God designed for your marriage, we need to see what is God's design for it? What's God's pattern for it? How has he made it? Because we all have, whether you acknowledge this or not, we all have a picture in our mind of what marriage is supposed to look like. We all have a design. We all have a pattern that we think of. It might, most often it comes from our parents because we saw their marriage. That was the marriage that we were around the most. Even if you are like me and you come from a broken home, that still presents to you a picture of what marriage looks like. And most oftentimes, the pattern that we operate from is what we get from our parents. If not that, the pattern that we often get is just from the movies and culture around us. You were taught about marriage from Julia Roberts. You were taught about marriage from Jennifer Aniston and and whoever, whatever other romantic comedies that you've seen, whatever shows that you watch. That's what our picture of marriage comes from. Sometimes it's just kind of our gut and what we think it should look like and what it should be. Or maybe you've read books and literature, but we do have some picture of what marriage should look like, some pattern of what it should follow. And if you really want to experience marriage the way God intended it to be. If you really want to experience the fullness that is possible, we need to see what is God's pattern? What is God's design for marriage? So we're going to spend two weeks on this. Today, talking about husbands and next week, talking about wives. Answering this question, how can we experience all all the fullness in marriage that God intends for us? What is God's pattern for marriage? So I'm going to read you this whole passage. It's the same passage we'll look at the next two weeks. I'll read you this whole thing, and then we'll go through it and see what God's pattern is for marriage. And I'll just warn you now, you might have kind of some like friction, but this is God's word that we read together. Here's what it said. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, he's quoting now from Genesis, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So let's begin with this as we look at what God's pattern is for marriage. What is a husband's 
calling? What is a husband's calling or what is a husband's role? What is a husband's job within a marriage that God has designed? What is the calling that God gives to a husband? And he uses this word, the husband is the head. Very simply, that just means leadership. That is what the husband's calling is. Now, it's impossible to say that phrase in 2023 in America and think that everyone just goes, yeah, yeah, of course, that's, that's what it is. In other cultures and other places in the world, especially non-European places, that's not really controversial. But in 2023 in America, especially in a Western European culture, that is a controversial thing to say. If you hear that, and you get upset about that to say that the husband is the head or the husband is the leader. If that makes you uncomfortable, if that feels wrong, even if that feels oppressive or it feels back, back kind of backwoods or back outdated or anything like that, I, I get that. I understand that that's not kind of how we are raised often or what we think about when it comes to marriage. And there's really a few reasons that, that this can be something that really can be uncomfortable or rubs us the wrong way. I think one of them is because there has been a lot of bad men. There's been a lot of bad men. There's abusive men. There are men that are lazy. There are men that are selfish. There's been a lot of bad men. So if you hear something like that, and, and also it may be in your own home that you experienced, whether that's your own marriage or that is what you saw growing up, that to hear a phrase like that can be, uh, that I've seen a lot of bad men. I've seen a lot of ways that that's gone wrong, even Christians abusing this kind of phrase to say in some kind of way that they are oppressive to their wives in the name of the Bible. Another reason that we can hear that and kind of feel uncomfortable with it is that's not the way our culture in America, 2023, that's not the way our culture operates. And specifically, it's not the stories that our culture tells, especially again in 2023. When you think about the way, just think about movies and shows that a husband is often portrayed in, in movies and film and shows, it's often incompetent. Maybe the classic example of that, though it may be a little dated, is a Homer Simpson kind of person. It's a very incompetent person. It's not as this loving servant leader that Paul gives to us here. It's kind of a fool, kind of incompetent, oftentimes it is actually the woman that has to come and fix the situation. She's the one with the brains. Oftentimes, even now, especially in the last 10, 15 years, it's the woman that's the strong one that actually is the powerful one. So our kind of social imagination and the stories and the narratives we tell don't speak to this really anymore. Oftentimes, probably in reaction to maybe things that were done when, I don't know, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, kind of early media, tough guy, machismo kind of stuff. In a reaction to that, it's actually been replaced with most of the social imagination that we have now is, is very strong women and incompetent men. If you don't believe that, just go scroll through the most popular shows and movies right now. That's, that's what you'll see oftentimes. You don't have a lot of stories of a strong leader husband in a home, right? <clears throat> Third reason is in general, we are as a culture anti-authority. If you think about bosses, leaders, even pastors, government, hierarchy, 
if you think about institutions as a culture in 2023, we are anti-authority. So any kind of authority, maybe even if it were to say the woman is the head of the home, the wife is the head of the home, we might go, uh, there shouldn't be any head of anything. We're just kind of anti-authority in general. So all of that brings us to a place that a text like this can be difficult to hear, can be uncomfortable to hear, can make us feel attention, can make us even just go, this is why I'm not a Christian. This kind of stuff is just silly. It's stupid. It's outdated. That can be some of what we may be feeling. And if that's you, Okay, if that's if you feel that way and in any kind of part of that, if that's how you kind of are beginning to process the very beginning of this sermon, if that's where you're at, just want you to let the Bible speak and see if maybe there's something in here that speaks to a lot of the problems that we have in marriage, a lot of even our cultural problems, and see if God's ancient wisdom isn't actually timely to today. Can't say I'll fully convince you, but Let's just have an open mind and come to God's word saying, what if maybe we've gotten it wrong? What if maybe there's a reason divorce rates are so high? What if maybe there's a reason our culture is so sexually broken? What if maybe there's a reason the families are often torn apart? What if maybe there's a reason for all of these things? And what might happen if we began to experience what God's pattern and God's design is? So all that's just preface. Now the sermon really begins. Start the clock. Um, I'm just joking. So what is a husband's calling? It says as the leader, as the head. And if you come to that text and think, well, that's just that culture. This is our culture. That's just, that's just kind of then. This is now. Don't we need to adapt to now? The problem with that kind of thinking is the way that Paul grounds this is not in a particular time and setting, but he grounds it in the relationship between Christ and the church. He says the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Meaning this is a this this is rooted in something permanent. Not he doesn't say the reason that it is is because in Rome this is kind of how we do things in Greece this is kind of how we do things. He says this is grounded in the relationship between Christ and the church. And then in this this is a quote from Genesis, he grounds it in the way that things were actually created. So he grounds it in the relationship between Christ and the church, which is a permanent reality. And this quote from Genesis grounds it in how things were actually created. So it doesn't work to say this is just kind of a cultural reality at that time. Paul's logic, God's logic that he's giving us is this is grounded in the deepest things possible. Your hardwiring as a person, who we were created to be the way that God intended and created the world before anything was fallen or broken, and between the relationship of Christ and the church. And here's what this means. The husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. What that means to be a head is that you are called, if you are a husband, to take primary responsibility. Not all the responsibility, not everything, but you are called to take primary responsibility. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. It doesn't mean that there's greater value. It doesn't mean there's greater worth. It doesn't mean that the husband is to be a tyrant or a despot that controls everything. It doesn't mean any of those things. It doesn't mean the husband sits around in his pajamas getting fed grapes all day long. It doesn't mean that. It means that the husband is the one that is to be a leader, the head, as Christ is. So if Christ is the model, it doesn't fit any of those kind of caricatures I just said. Christ, the husband is the head as Christ is the head 
of the church, which means this. Sometimes when, when I talk to guys, especially going through a pre-marriage process and ask, what's your understanding of what it means that a husband is the head in his home? Sometimes there's an understanding that, well, if there's a decision that has to be made, I'm the one that breaks the tie. Now, maybe that's true, but that is such a small little picture of what it means to be a leader. And if you boil it down to the only time that I ever act as a leader is when there's a tie-breaking decision that has to be made, you will abdicate much of the responsibility that God has given you. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much more than that. What it means is that you take primary responsibility for your marriage, for your home, for your family. It means that God holds you responsible for your home. It means that God holds you responsible for your family. Go back to the Garden of Eden. They sin. If you're a Christian, you know these stories or you've at least heard them. They go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin against God. They run and they hide. God comes to hold them accountable. And what does he say? Adam, where are you? He holds the man primarily responsible because he is the head. Which means, men, if there's problems in your home, God holds you primarily responsible. That doesn't mean that, there's, it's, that you're guilty of everything, but it means that God holds you responsible. Think about the same way that it often is in businesses. That if there's a, a big oil spill, or there, I, that's the one that's kind of fresh in my mind, or I don't know if you saw the show on Apple TV, uh, uh, We Crashed, of WeWorks kind of rise and fall. It's always the CEO that's the one that goes to jail. It's always the CEO that is the one that's fined. It's always the CEO that has to resign or step down. They don't find some kind of mid-level manager and say, sorry, we're putting this all on you, bro. That's not how it works, right? It's whoever is the head of the company, even if it wasn't all on them that is held responsible for the quality of the whole. This is what it means to be the head. It means that God holds you primarily responsible. You set the culture. You set the direction of where your marriage and where your family will go. It also means this. To be a leader is one that initiates. To be a leader is one that says, let's fill in the blank. Let's talk about this. Let's pray about this. It doesn't mean that a wife can never take initiative and say those kinds of things, but it does mean that a husband should view it as his responsibility, his primary responsibility to say, let's talk about this. Let's think about this. Let's pray about this. Let's consider this. Let's grow in this way. He is the primary initiator. That is what the calling of the husband means. So husbands, this is what your calling is. If you're a single man and you hope to get married one day, this is what the calling of a husband is. Let me ask you, have you embraced that calling? Or have you abdicated it? Have you said, nah, I don't, I, we just kind of do things 50-50, or really my wife is the one that's great at that. And maybe selfishness has actually driven you in the name of some sort of egalitarianness. Because it's really easy for men to just say, you know what, I just really like things equal. Because then that means there's 50% work less that I have to do. But God has called men to be the leaders in their home, to be the ones that embrace the ownership, the primary responsibility, the weight 
of the marriage, the home, and the family. Have you embraced that? That's the first thing, the calling of the husband. How does a husband live out his calling? How does a husband live out his calling? Because it's one thing to say that a husband is the leader or the head of the home, and then another to say, what does that look like? What does that mean? How does that actually get fleshed out? What actually happens? And if you don't read the rest, it's easy to say, sweet, I'm the leader. That means everybody does stuff for me. That is not a leader as Christ leads the church. It's also easy to say, that just means I boss everybody around. It's also easy to say, I have no idea what that means. So sure, on paper, if there's a tie-breaking decision, I'll do that. What does it mean? How does a husband live out his calling? And the word that Paul gives and the, at the very end, as he says, he sums it all up, is simple. It's love. That is the word that defines the calling of a husband's leadership, is love. To love his wife as Christ loved the church. And he gives us several dimensions of what that means. He spells it out for us. The beginning one is that a husband is sacrificial. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So the beginning of what, if you say, okay, I embrace it. I'm the leader of my home. What does that look like? What does it mean? Well, we look to Jesus, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, sacrificed for her. Jesus laid down his life for the benefit of the church, of us. He said, I will sacrifice myself for your good. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating that it's really only in Christianity of the major religions of the world that you see that you have a God that sacrifices himself for others. We know, listen, most of you, I don't know where all your faith is, but we know in America, if you say most people believe in God, about 95% of people, most people believe in God. You've heard me say this before. Most people believe in God. And what kind of God would they say they believe in? A loving God. And yet, if you don't believe in the God of Christianity, you don't have a loving God. Because we know that the highest form of love is self-sacrifice. And there is no love that's just yeah, I just kind of feel generally nice feelings towards you. That's not love. The best that human love is, is one that is willing to sacrifice for another. And it's only in Christianity that you have a God that says, I will sacrifice myself for my people. I will lay down my life for my bride. How could the best of our love stories not be equal to if we say we believe in a God of love? How could we say we believe in a God of love when human love surpasses the God of love that's outside of Christianity? It's only in Christianity that you have a God that says, I died for the ones I love. Self-sacrifice. This is what Paul begins with in giving the husbands how they live out. You are the head. What does that mean? It means you die to yourself the way Christ did for his church. Now, there's one thing to say, okay, yes, would you be willing to take a bullet for your wife? Okay, fine. But that's not, that's not really what it looks like in an everyday practice. It means you are willing to disadvantage yourself for the sake of your wife. It means you are willing to suffer for her. It means you are willing to step into the things that are hard and take more pain on yourself to give her life. It means you are willing to serve. It means that there's things that are difficult and challenging that you would rather not step into, that you would rather not do, that your tendency may even be to just be served but to step in as Jesus did 
is not to avoid the hard things, but to give yourself for the good of another, to embrace pain in yourself for the benefit of another. That's what Jesus did for his church. That's what husbands are called to do for their wives. Secondly, it's not just that, but he did this with a purpose. It said he did this to make her holy or to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle. It says Jesus gave himself up, sacrificed for his bride so that he would present her to himself beautifully. Now it's talking about us as the church, which by the way, if you're not a husband and you're like, okay, I can just kind of tune out in this message. This is about all of us because we are all the church. If you are a Christian, we're a part of his church. So this is what Jesus did for his church. He gave himself up for you. He died for you. Why? To present you beautiful, to make you all that you were designed to be, to get rid of every spot in you, to get rid of every wrinkle in you, to get rid of all the sin, all the blemishes, all the, all the things that mess up your life and keep you from who he designed you to be. He gave himself for you to, another word the Bible uses, is to sanctify you, to purify you. Husbands were to have this same intention with our wives. We're to have the same goal in our wives. That our goal for our wives should be to see them fully become everything that God designed them to be. That by being married to you, your wife should become more beautiful. And I'm not saying that you put makeup on her. I'm saying you be through being married to you, she should become more fully who God designed her to be. Through being married to you, she should become more fully the person that God created her to be. There should be an intention and a purpose that she is, is your wife flourishing because of you? Or is she not flourishing? Or is she flourishing in spite of you? Your wife is to become more fully who God designed her to be because of the love, the service, the care that you have given to her. That's the calling that God has given to a husband. That's what the love actually looks like, which means a husband should expect cultivation, just as Jesus does with us. That if you think when you get married, that it's, that's it, that's the end. It shouldn't be. It should be that over time, things grow more beautiful. It should be that you say, I'm committed to this person and I'm giving myself to see them become fully who God has made them to be. That is what a husband is committed to. That is what the love of Jesus looks like for the church and what the love that a husband looks like towards his wife, not by yelling at her and changing her, not by guilting her into becoming different and better, not by even kind of bribing her with things to change her. Here's a spa day. Here's a massage. Here's this to make her better. But through the washing of water with the word, which is the way that God changes us is by bringing his word more into our life. He speaks to us. He shows us more clearly who he is. He shows us more clearly his character, his love. We as husbands are able to do the same thing with our wives, helping them more clearly see who God is talking, conversation, helping them know who Jesus is more fully, helping them see more his love for them, his call in their life, and participating with him in this work. Are you committed to that? 
Is this what you embrace? Again, listen, we all have a pattern for marriage. Whether you realize it or not, whether you wrote it down or not, we all have a pattern of how we live in a marriage. This is the pattern that God gives to us. So if you are a husband and you've gotten your pattern from somewhere, this is the pattern that God gives to us. It may be very different from how you think about being a husband, but this is the pattern that God gives. A love that is sacrificial, a love that is purposeful, a love that is a unified love. Look what he says next. We already read this whole thing, but then he kind of changes from Christ in the church, even though this is actually connected to Christ in the church, but he starts with this. Husbands love their wives as their own bodies. To love as your own body. Think about that. That's a powerful image, actually, because you take care of your body. I'm not saying that we all are the healthiest, or, but you take care of your body. When you're hungry, you eat. When you are tired, you sleep. If you hurt yourself, if you, if you hurt your back, you take ibuprofen or you lay down, you take care of your body. When your body has needs, you say, body, maybe you don't talk to yourself like that, but when your body has needs, you, you say, I'm going to meet those needs. And it's not even just when your body has needs. When your body has wants, you take care of that. You never need ice cream. But sometimes your body wants ice cream and you don't go, sorry, body, you don't need it. You say, body, you want it. And you let your body eat it. You take care of your body, right? You love your body. You love it. You shave it. You wash it. You sleep with it. You do all sorts of things with your body. And he says this, love your wives as your own body. This is what the Bible's image is over and over again of marriage. And when he quotes from Genesis to say, you've become one flesh now. You are one with your wife. The same way that you think about your body and caring for your body and you, you view the needs of your body as you and the wants of your body and the desires, you take care of that because it's you. But in marriage, he says, you've become one. She is you in some sense. And you are her in some sense. You have become one, which is why he says to love your wife is to love yourself. Because as you love and care and meet needs and are proactive and attentive, it benefits you also because you are one. He says this is the same way that Christ loves us because we are members of his body. He unifies himself to us. We become one with him and he takes care of us. He is attentive to us. We are his very own body. When the apostle Paul, the author of this, was against the church and was a persecutor of the church, he's on the road to go hurt Christians. Jesus appears to him and in a, in a vision, in a flash of light, and he says, why are you persecuting me? But Jesus is gone. He's ascended. But because Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus says, you are persecuting me. Because he viewed himself as spiritually one. The interests, the concerns, the desires, the needs, the wants, the passions of the church are his. The same way for a husband that we are one with our wives. Paul says, love her as you love your own body. Her joy is your joy. Her concerns are your concerns. Her needs are your needs. That creates 
a proactive attention, not a separation. You just kind of do your thing. I'll do my thing. But we are one. We are one. Which, by the way, I'll say this, because I know that this sermon hasn't been controversial enough. This is one of the reasons. This is one of the reasons that the Bible's sexual ethic is that there's only to be sex within a marriage. Because what sex is, is saying, I am permanently yours. I want to be fully one with you. I'm exclusively yours. I want to be fully one with you. I am totally yours, not just physically, but emotionally. We are one. And sex is a picture of that, which is why the the Bible isn't just kind of some anti-sex or repressive book. It's saying what it is, is a picture of full oneness. And it lies if it's anything outside of a covenant that is saying we are fully one. I've totally, fully, permanently given myself to you. And this is a physical expression of that. Next, it is, and related to this body imagery, he says that it is a providing love. You, If it is your own body, no one ever hates his own body. No one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. We'll look at the care word in a second. But that word provision, that's what you do for your body, right? You provide for your body. And he says, this is what the husband, this is part of how the husband is to love, is to provide for his wife. That's a broad word that can mean all sorts of things. You can think of spiritual, emotional, physical, mental, but that you are to provide. You are to meet the needs of. You are to, some translations say, nourish, because that word for provide is a like feeding word, that you are to nourish, you are to provide for your wife. What are the needs in your marriage? You might see some of them. You might see the various needs that are in your marriage. Say, man, we need to work on this, or this is a problem, or there's conflict here, or we need, we need to change this. You might see the various needs in your wife. As a husband, your job is to lead by loving. And one of the ways that love expresses itself is in providing, providing spiritually to pray for, to say, I want to provide for your spiritual needs. Let's be a part of a church. I want to be, I want to provide for your spiritual needs. Let me make sure that I am able to make time that you can connect with other women in an LTG or community group. Let me make sure to help provide for your needs. Sometimes when it's with the kids and things get really busy and crazy, I'm going to make sure that we are able to pay for a babysitter. We're able to take care of this, get you some help doing this or whatever it is that you provide. It literally means you provide physically in your home, that you're not lazy, that you are working hard. It means that you are able to meet the various needs that exist in your home. It means that you are providing physically. Is your home safe? I heard one pastor, John Piper, say that if there's a a noise in the house, there's a noise in the house. I don't know where your bedroom is, but if there's a noise in the house, no one would say, well, I checked it last time, sweetheart. It's your turn to go check it now. (laughs) It doesn't matter how egalitarian or outdated you think this is, if you would do that, you're a fool. And he says, even if your wife has the black belt in karate, you go, she's behind you. And when you get knocked out, then she can defeat him. But you're still going to go first. 
That is true. You would all think I was a total loser of a man if I told you, oh my gosh, I was so scared last night. We were watching a show, but Sarah went upstairs. Yeah, that's why she has a black eye. This robber came in. He beat her up, but I'm thankful it was her turn. Right? No one would be like, wow, I'm really glad you guys have such an equal marriage. No one would feel that way. It is the job of a husband to provide, to protect for his wife. That is your primary responsibility. Even if you're married to an MMA fighter wife, that is still your job. You are to provide spiritually. You are to provide physically. Take that as practical as it gets. Maybe some of you need to work out. Maybe some of you need to get better locks on your doors. Maybe some of you need to just think better about the finances and spend less money on things over here while your wife's struggling with things over here. I don't know all the intricacies and details of where it applies. And Paul doesn't spell it all out with a laundry list of do all these, but it does mean, do you take it as your responsibility that you are to provide spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally for your marriage? That is what your calling is. I also say it means this. It it means to provide also means that you are making sure that nothing gets into your marriage that's bad. You're making sure that spiritually your home is guarded from the influences of the world, the flesh, the devil. Part of that means some of the stuff that Paul was talking about earlier about anger and conflict and how he says, don't give Satan an opportunity. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That means it's your job, husbands, that if there's conflict in your home to be the lead in saying, let's resolve this. Let's work on this. I'm sorry. Then he says to care, to care. So he, he provides and cares. And again, other translations I I like better actually use the word cherish. So it's to nourish and to cherish that a husband's job is to cherish and provision has the, the connotations of kind of this physical provision and nourishment, but care actually has more to do with what you might think of with cherishing, which is a tenderness. It's beyond just the physical needs that are met. It more has to do with the climate. The word literally means to keep warm, which is great news for some of you ladies. We're like, I've got a verse. You're supposed to turn the heat on. You are, you are required to cuddle me. You are required to keep me warm. There's a Bible verse. Paul commands it. Keep your wife warm. That's literally what it means. There's a lot of amens, more than ever. (laughs) To cherish your wife is to keep her warm. Husbands, you are a heater. That's your job. And you can think about that again physically by her slippers or whatever, right? Physically. But the climate in your home, is it one of tenderness? Is it one of affection? Or is it cold? A lot of times what happens is no one ever meets each other and is like, we really don't like each other that much, but let's get married. That, that doesn't really happen. Most of the time you meet each other. There's a warmth. There's a tenderness. There's an affection. Then you get married and life kind of begins to happen. And then when you add kids to that, and what can happen is it becomes more business oriented a lot of times. Two people living separate lives, doing separate things, and it loses the loving feeling. It loses the warmth and the affection and the tenderness. Paul says, it is your job to cherish your wife. 
It is your job to bring a warmth, a, a love that is not just, I work hard, I do these things for my family, but a love that is a cherishing love, a love that is a tender love that turns the heat on, that literally is filled with affection and passion, that says, I love you, that says, I love you often, not, remember what I told you when we got married, I said, I loved you then, just remember that, now we're good, but it's a love that is, what, what would tenderness, what would, what would cherishing mean? Maybe ask your wife, what would it look like and feel like if I was cherishing you? Do you feel like I give you a warmth? I've talked to many people that this is an aspect that really begins to hurt and fade away. Husbands, it's your job. It is your job to show the warmth and the affection to say, I love you. Never leave or enter your home without saying, I love you and giving a kiss, to hold hands, to put your arm around, to hug. That's what cherishing is. That's what warmth is. To play. To have fun. So, how does a husband live out his calling? Paul says, you're the leader. You are to love Here's what love looks like. And he gives us self-sacrifice. He gives us a purposeful love. He gives us a unifying love, a providing love, a cherishing love. Now, let me say some words to different groups of people here. If you're a single man, this doesn't start when you get married. All of these things that are said are things that you can begin to step into now. I'm not saying with just a random woman, you step into them now, like I'm going to cherish you. But then she's going to be like, get away from me. I don't mean that. But I mean, you become this kind of, you can become a self-sacrificing person now. You can become someone that thinks about the needs of others and provides now. You can be someone that is not selfish, but is attentive and proactive in your community group and with your friends now. You can be someone that is warm and affectionate now. You can be an encouraging person that sends notes and encourages people and gives hugs to people. You can become a warm, affectionate person now. So this doesn't start like, okay, I'm at the altar. It's time to really get my stuff together. That's not when it happens. You can do this now. Don't start later. And single ladies, look for a man like this. That's hard. I know that. I have a, I have a young daughter growing into a woman tell my kids all the time. It's, this is not easy, especially if you're a young Christian woman. There's not a lot of great options. No offense to the single men that are in here. I'm not talking about you, but there's not a lot of great options. So I speak as a father and as a pastor for many years, for any of you single ladies, I know that it's a challenge, but it's better not to settle than it is to marry someone that is going to have a totally different design and pattern for what God says will bring fullness. So I know it's hard, but look for someone like that. Pray for someone like that. You won't be able to build this kind of life and this kind of vision that God has with someone that doesn't share this commitment, these values. And for both of you, if you're single, male or female, if you're single, part of what it looks like, even if you never marry, is you're a part of the body of Christ. It's just to be a good friend. 
It's to, for us as married people, to be good friends to single people. But part of what it means if you're a single person is you might hear all this instruction about marriage, but this is what God calls your married friends to. And so you can encourage them. You can help them. You can speak truth into their life because we do that collectively together as a community. For you wives, if you feel like this is not happening in your marriage, pray. Ask God to work on him. Ask God to change him. Talk to him. Not in a mean, demeaning, you're such, you did, you failed at every single point of that in Caleb's sermon. Not like that. But in a way that says, hey, can we talk? In a way that is caring and loving and respectful. But you have every right to say, I want us to more fully follow into what God's pattern is. Talk to him. Encourage him when you see him doing these things, even just a, even baby steps. Sometimes as guys, we are like, okay, I'm going to try. Even if he just barely does one thing, he's like, I'm going to write a note. Hi. He's like, here you go. Just say, thank you. That meant so much to me. Like just, even if it's baby steps, just encourage him. If your marriage is really hard, it's not just like, yeah, you know, he's kind of doing that. Or a lot of people have broken marriages, divorce, or your marriage is totally painful. And I've been in the room with marriages like that. The good news is that this is all modeled on who Jesus is. And Jesus does this perfectly. And so for every deficit that your husband has, you can receive from Jesus his cherishing love, his providing love. He self-sacrifices for you. The picture that your marriage is supposed to be built on, even if it's broken, is fulfilled in Jesus. And he gives that to you. The same way that for those of us that maybe would say, man, my father was not who he was supposed to be and never had that kind of relationship. God as father is the perfect father that you can receive his fathering to you. And then husbands, this is your call. This is your call forever. Not like, all right, today I'm going to really try on this. This is your call. This is the responsibility. This is the calling that God has given to you. Are you pursuing that call? Doesn't mean you're perfect, but are you pursuing that call? Is that what you are setting your face upon and saying, yes, I want to live in what God's calling is for me. Not just my own imagination, not just pattering it after my parents, not just what I saw in a movie or read in a blog, but I want to set myself to what God's called me to do. Is that what you're pursuing? That's what he has for you. So commit to that. Confess where there's been failure in that. Learn, seek to grow, set yourself for the next 30 years, 40 years, 50 years to this is the direction I'm moving. Final thing, where does a husband get the strength for his calling. Because if you're honest, men, you cannot hear this without being overwhelmed in some way. I remember the day of our wedding. The day of our wedding, I remember praying and saying, God, this is, there's going to be a, a change that takes place. I'm not just boyfriend or fiance, but there's a spiritual change that God now looks at me and says, you are husband. There's an actual spiritual change of two becoming one of what Paul says is a mystery. It's a profound mystery, but there is a spiritual reality that takes place 
And I remember being like, wow, that's, that's a heavy thing to step into that. So if you hear this job description to lay down your life, to provide, to nourish, to cherish, to have a purpose, and you feel overwhelmed by that or feel like that's a lot or that's too much, or I'd rather just, let's just kind of, we just float through life and kind of figure it out. It is an overwhelming thing. It is an overwhelming thing. And the key, the source of the strength is throughout this whole thing, what he's been saying. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ. Husbands love your wives as Christ in the same way as Christ does for the church. I'm talking about Christ in the church. This is the key source of your strength. What does it mean that the husband is to model all of this after Christ? It means that as you look to Christ, you receive his love for you. You receive his care for you. You see the perfect husband, the perfect savior that did all this, and you receive it for yourself as a model, as an example. Yes. But also what Paul's been talking about throughout this whole letter is you need to remember and see what God's done for you. Husbands, as you see that Jesus sacrificed for you, you are filled and enabled to sacrifice for your wife. As you see how much he's provided for you, as you see how gracious he's been to you, as you see how he's even cherished you, is warm towards you, is not cold towards you, as you see how he has a purpose for you and is working patiently with you and tender towards you, as you see that towards you, and you are, as Paul has prayed for us earlier, to be filled with the knowledge of God, as a husband in particular now, and you are filled with the knowledge of his love, as, as you remember and experience that, that's where you learn to do this. That's where you receive the strength to do this, which means this, the key to marriage is not marriage. The key to marriage is not communication. The key to marriage is not compromise. The key to marriage is not all sorts of other things that you've seen or read in marriage books. The key to marriage is you receiving from Christ all that he is and then living that out and then reflecting that, which means you can never be the husband you were designed to be apart from you receiving from Christ all he is to you. You can never lead what you're not experiencing yourself. You can never give and reflect what your face is not turned towards yourself. So if you feel weak or overwhelmed as a husband, that's okay. It's a challenging job. But the way forward isn't just white knuckle, try harder as a husband. The way forward is received from Christ all he's been and done towards you. Ask God to make that real to your heart. Then reflect that out to your wife and to others. The more we see this, the more we are changed by him. When we take communion, this is actually what we are remembering. We're remembering that Jesus gave himself for his church, for his bride. That Jesus poured out his blood on the cross. That his body was broken on the cross. That he gave himself graciously to his bride. And so as we take communion... We remember these things. We remember we have a Savior who's given himself to us. 
and we receive that love. And listen, we receive that grace that if you're a husband and you hear these things and go, I've, I've messed up a lot of that. I've failed a lot of that. You receive his grace and his forgiveness as you take communion. He forgives you. He gave himself for you. He's purifying you. He's working on you. It also means as you take communion, you're able to reflect and receive and give grace to those that have failed us. So where you feel like your husband maybe has failed you, you're able to receive forgiveness and give forgiveness. And you're able to remember the ultimate love that you have from him. Whether you have it in a man or not, you have it in him. This is God's design for marriage. If you're married or if you want to be married, we want we want a fullness in our marriage. We want, we want not just kind of to get by, but to have one that lasts and is filled with joy and filled with affection. That's what we want. God says, step into my pattern. Step into the way I've designed things and see what can happen. So yes, it's difficult. Yes, it costs. But God equips you. He strengthens you. And he gives you a community to do this together. So let's pray. Let's take communion, respond, thanking God for his grace, his forgiveness of us, his love for his bride. We sing in songs. I'll be in the back if anyone would like prayer. And husbands particularly, as you take communion, let me just give you a charge. Confess to God where you failed. It's okay. He he hears you. He forgives you. But confess to God where you failed and ask for his strengthening power to move forward. And then maybe you don't get in a whole conversation right now with your wife. But you can at least whisper, I'm sorry, forgive me, let's talk more. God wants to give us joyful, strong, enduring marriages that reflect the beauty of his salvation to the church. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your grace to us, that you would give yourself for us, that you are a self-sacrificing God that gave everything gave your very life, gave your very blood, gave your very body to save your bride. Thank you for that. And pray that as we take communion, you would allow us to experience and remember and know and believe the forgiveness of our sins and to know your love. And I pray particularly for the husbands in this room that we would step into the calling that you have for us, that we would love like you love, that we would receive your love and reflect it to our wives that you've given to us. God, strengthen the marriages in this room. In your name, Jesus. Amen.